Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit crew tackles the age-old question of what makes a classic book. We hope you find the discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. If you're looking for extra encouragement and inspiration, be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a special announcement from Center for Lit. Meanwhile, let's join the great conversation in progress. Welcome to Bibliophiles, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Adam Andrews here, along with my colleagues at Center for Lit, who also happen to be my favorite people in the world. My wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Hey. And his lovely wife, Emily. Hello. Good to be with you guys again. I am always excited by the prospect of hearing your thoughts on a literary and philosophical topic. I don't think I'm going to be disappointed today. <laughs> There's already a certain electricity in the air as we get set to go here. Maybe that's there because... There is not. Yeah. <laughs> not any more than usual, you mean. <laughs> the reason, I think, is because we are tackling a question that today that's almost universal among serious readers and teachers and parents pursuing a literary experience. Now, this question has come up repeatedly here at Center for Lit in the last couple of months, but the best version of it comes from one of the students in our online academy who wrote it to us in an email recently. And what I want to do is just read this email to kind of get us started with today's discussion. It's a, the kind of email that as a teacher, you hope and pray you will receive <laughs> from a student at some point in your career. And we got the pleasure of receiving this email in the last month or so. So I just want to read it to you. It goes like this. Dear Mr. A, I've wondered this for a great deal of time. What makes a classic novel? Quite obviously, history's classics are novels that reflect upon universal themes, significant periods of time, tragic love affairs, etc. Wuthering Heights, The Great Gatsby, Romeo and Juliet, Pride and Prejudice, all formally renowned for being classic pieces of literature and therefore eternally remarkable and worthwhile and written a really long time ago. But I can't help but wonder what books from my generation will later become classics. What makes a book a classic? Is it only possible to recognize a book as being a classic many years after that book has been published or after its author is dead? And there you have it, my friends, an email from one of our students in the online academy that gets us going, I think, on a fabulous topic of conversation that book lovers the world over have probably asked at one time or another in their reading lives, what makes a classic novel? What'd you guys think of that email, first of all? That email was <clears throat> impressive. <laughs> Why Very well written. <laughs> yes, I loved to hear our students thinking like that. Mm. It's wonderful. Mm. What's the essence of her question? Well, I think it, I think it's got some traction here. Um, I've been reading even online recently a lot of conversations um, to this point. The idea of certainly when, for example, when Homer was writing years ago, he was writing to his contemporaries, and not even—I mean, we weren't even uh, in his mind as possible readers. Is it not true that there are people writing today who may still be around and being read? Um, in hundreds of years. Yeah, that's really the question she's asking. What books from my generation will later become classics? In other words, how can you tell, right? Right, right. And there's, 
I think that this question has been asked. It's been asked for a long time. Yeah. And, um, it, there's no one way to answer it for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way to draw up a list um, that's indisputable. Well, speaking of list, time. speaking of list, I thought a great way to jump into a conversation about this topic using this email as a springboard is to notice that this student actually gives us a list. And I mm. thought it was really interesting, the titles that she chose. It is interesting. <laughs> Wuthering Heights, yeah. The Great Gatsby, Romeo and Juliet, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> An interesting selection. There's no prejudice in that <laughs> list. It's not like the other. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. It's what did, very interesting. What did you say, Emily? <laughs> I said one of these things is not like the other, <laughs> especially at the end with books that were written a really long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, the student may be betraying an age issue if uh, The Great Gatsby, for example, is on a list of written a really long time ago. Oh, you know, it was a long time ago for her. Not quite a hundred years, right? <laughs> but the, the any, it's interesting. Anytime you make a list to say, these are classic books, what else belongs on this list? You betray a certain prejudice perhaps, or at least you betray an assumption about what inclusion on the list means. Mm-hmm. And that's well, really and the other kind of the question, right? About what is a classic, what qualifies for inclusion on the list? Go ahead, Ian. I think one of the reasons this is such a contentious question is that um, qualitatively by making a list, what you're mostly doing is excluding right. all of the works of literature that you didn't have time to name. <laughs> right. Right. Which gets on everybody's bad side instantly. Right. <laughs> It's true. I, I think um, if we polled the most recognized personalities in the field of literature and said to them, write a list of books in the present day that you feel will be classics, um, you get everything from soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there would be any kind of consensus among them as to what those books will be. Um, there may be a bit of overlap. And the the question is, wherein there would be overlap, why would it exist? So. So you're saying because of the wide variety of opinion, even among literary experts about which current book should belong on a list of classics, we're really getting down to an answer to this student's question when she says, is it only possible to recognize a book as being a classic many years after that book has been published or after its author is dead? In other words, some time has to pass, right? Right. And I think she's right in saying that. And and anybody who's ever tried to compile a list like that has usually applied um, in their list of parameters an element of, of time. Some sort of 50-year rule or 100-year rule, rule or something. Right, exactly. And it seems like the more time passes, those books that are older, there is more of a consensus. Like no one would dispute um, the appropriateness of putting Homer's works and Virgil's work on the list. You know, yeah. no one would dispute that Shakespeare belongs there. There are, the, the further away you get from the actual penning of the work itself, the more people begin to acknowledge that yes, it belongs. So that element of time. And I think it's because um, one of the things that makes a classic, one of the parameters for choosing a classic deals with its universality. And it's really hard to tell when you're looking at works in your present day, um, what's going to remain. Is the work important because it speaks only to your time and the issues within it? Or is it truly universal? Yeah. Does it reach beyond the immediate to speak to all men in all times everywhere? Right. And I think in order to answer that question... You got to um, wait. You, you've got to wait a little. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't preclude looking at books from the 20th century. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a great resurgence 
in the classics and the study of the classics, the reading of the classics, the inclusion of the great books and lit courses. And we've talked about this before in other podcasts, but the men that were at the helm of this movement have become a kind of household names for anybody in the humanities, Mortimer Adler and Hutchins, Robert Hutchins, Robert Hutchins and Clifton Fadiman um, and their ilk. They were really, they were really trendsetters. You're talking about the back. guys that put together the great books collection yes. published by Encyclopedia Britannica in the 50s. Yes, yes. Um, and we have them to thank for that work. And when they, when they set about to do this, they had to come to this question. How do we decide what to include and what to exclude? And when you come to their, well, when you look at their set, there are some things that are um, startlingly absent. Like, for example, the works of John Donne are not in the set. 17th century, why not? Well, there are some reasons. They came, they came to agree on parameters that included, um, let's see, number one, the book had to be universally re- relevant, not just personally relevant or, or particularly relevant to the era um, in which the author was writing, but universally relevant. Number two, it, it was chosen because of its rereadability. Mm-hmm. It bore second, third, fourth readings every time presenting new ideas, deeper ideas, deeper understanding. And number three, these books were extensively relevant to the great ideas, sometimes partaking of more than one strain in what what they called the great conversation. So participating in on multiple levels in the great conversation about ideas. Right. Okay. Right. And so this is going to help us as we begin to talk about which books in the 20th century um, might make the grade. Mm. Um, they have included in, in a more recent um, edition of the Great Book series, they included some early 20th century works and said, you know, we won't go any nearer our own time than 50 years. Mm. You know, we're going to look at least 50 years back. So early 20th century is fair game. And they made a couple of inclusions there. Um, I think we can probably safely do likewise. Now, of course, anytime you talk, as Ian just mentioned, anytime you talk about guys that get together and actually make a list, the first thing they're going to do is tick people off. Of course. Because of the stuff they've left off or because of how can you be so arrogant as to define and make a list and everybody's going to disagree at, in one degree or another. But the the group that you're mentioning, authors of the great book series that probably right, a lot of our right. listeners have heard of, uh, have gone on to to lend their work to the curriculum departments of various colleges and universities around the country, University of Chicago back in the 50s, St. John's University in Annapolis, Maryland, is a great book school, which means it uses this curriculum that you're talking about, and great books programs exist in, in colleges and universities around the country. But let me just ask you guys, does the fact that such a list was created um, rub you all the wrong way? Do you like the principles that you hear Missy summarizing as ways to decide what makes a book a classic. And can this help us in our discussion at all? Well, I think as long as whoever is making the list is doing so with some degree of humility and that the list is approached with grace, right? So we can do our best to assemble a list, but there's always a chance. And I, in the introduction to the series, Hutchins says this, that it's very likely that they left something out. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they had limited time and space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in our dealings with each other, when we're talking about what the great books are, we have to be a little flexible. Mm, I think that's probably true. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that when we 
go about the task of constructing a list like this, we can never hope to be all-inclusive. I mean, we are going to leave things out necessarily just because of space and time and because of our own familiarity with the books. Um, of the making of books, there's no end. Right. We ourselves have not read all books. Right. And nor never will, will we ever yeah, read exactly. all books. So, of course, we're going to be um, omitting some. But the the work that that Adler and Hutchins did and, and people like them who participated mm-hmm. in, in this project, even privately, their work is, is um, helpful – in not only deciding what books go on a list of classics, but also on telling good books from bad books or potential classics from from potential non-classics bet- between the books in your own era, right? In other words, an, a direct right. answer to our students' question, what books from my generation will become classics? Adler is suggesting a rubric that helps us tell. What books from any generation will hmm. become right. classics. Exactly. It, for instance, is, does it have some sort of universal applicability? Yes. Look. Is it re? Well, just one second. Is it re-readable? <laughs> um, is it? Uh, what was the third one? Um, does it partake of in more than one strain right. of the great conversation? We can actually bit. tell about books that we've read yesterday. Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, for example, jumps mm-hmm. immediately to mind. I would say that upon my recent reading of the story, I think it partakes in, of, of all three of those definitions of a potential mm-hmm. classic. Whether or not it will be 100 years from now is not going to be for me or anyone alive today to decide. Right. We'll have to mm-hmm. wait and see. But in the meanwhile, I see a similarity given that definition between Marilyn Robinson's Gilead and Homer's Iliad. Oh, I, mean, I just really, rhymed. Did you hear that? <laughs> this question of the list, what should the list be, is really only relevant to people constructing the book lists for universities and schools, right? The ones um, putting together the program. For those of us that are readers, for the general reader, it's a way more helpful distinction to say, okay, which books are worthy? Yeah, what makes what a great a book? worthy Exactly. Book, right? Such a better question. And, the fact that it didn't happen to make it into the great book set doesn't necessarily mean it's not a worthy book. Right. Right. The ones that have made it within into the book, the uh, into the great (laughs) book set, those obviously we are to accept as worthy, but those that didn't make it aren't necessarily unworthy. Does that make sense? I think so. Right. And is a book necessarily good because it's old or are old books better well a lot of old books i think uh, we don't even read anymore we don't even know that they ever existed to begin with right and we it's good for us to trace the conversation back to the beginning and we want to preserve the oldest books that do meet these qualifications but at the same time we have to look at the entire conversation right what makes it better that they're older yeah i don't think it's a matter the only thing the only reason we put a rule um, like it, it has to have been around for 50 to 100 years on the whole thing is because it acknowledges the fact that we are creatures of our own culture and of our own time and that it's a little difficult to gain the perspective necessary in the present day to see whether or not something really is going to remain universal, right? How much of our um, our reception of a particular book in our time period is because it contributes to a current conversation that's very important. No one would even argue that it, uh, that it would be very important, right. very significant, maybe in the development of um, literature of the era or philo- philosophically important in the era. The question is, is it going to be universally adopted yeah. in time? And that's a question, as you say, Missy, for 
the developers of, of university curricula perhaps more than a question for readers. Because of course we are creatures of our own time and we don't want to, um, to be exempt from coming to the table in a discussion about the particular events and ideas that are significant to our own time and place. Mm -hmm. Even if it is just significant to our time, this is our time and place. And, you know, we want to, we want to participate in the great conversation so that we can bring some perspective to those immediate concerns, but we don't want to reject the immediate concerns themselves. Right. So it's good to be well-read even in the cultural issues of the day. Yeah, of course. You know, and as much as they present themselves in literature, that's all the better. Um, but really the thing that Emily is talking about, this idea of being familiar with the great conversation that began with the ancients and has come all the way up to the present day and will go on from here. Um, Clifton Fadiman, one of the, one of the architects of the great book series talked about this great conversation and listen to what he said. He said, what makes these books part of the great conversation is something so deep as to be elusive. It has to do with the impalpable medium of thought and sensibility in which our raw daily experience floats. The great conversationalists of the Western past are, as we have said, the architects of our mental habitat. That habitat is our real mother country, and we are its citizens. As citizens, we are all equal, but imaginative writers are more equal than the rest of us. They react to our common home in a special way, responding more intensely, interpreting it, extracting from it symbols, emblematic characters, images, webs of evocative language, epiphanies of human awareness. All these emerge from a view of life pervaded by the great ideas, even though the dramatist, the novelist, the poet may never explicitly cite them. This idea... That is beautiful. Yeah, this idea that the great conversation really is the lay of the land that we live in, that in some way, the ideas and the discussion that's been going on about the big ideas since the dawn of time um, have shaped the intellectual world that we live in. And until we read and understand the shape that that conversation has taken, we find ourselves... Um, we find ourselves tripping around in a, in a dark room over a lot of furniture that we don't even know is there. The, those ideas and arguments that these guys had are like the furnishings in the room that we're in. But until we read and come to, to be aware of them, we don't even know that it's there and we just trip around over things. So, so you're suggesting, Missy, that um, an answer to our students' question, what is a classic book, is a book that participates in that great conversation mm -hmm. that is a, a universally compelling contribution yes. to that great conversation that Hutchins describes. Yes. And so the, the question of whether or not the furniture that's been moved in this particular time period is going to stay where it's placed and become a fixture or not is the only question. Okay. Right. That's the question. That's why we can't proclaim with confidence that a current popular book will be a classic. I want to, I want to ask the, um, Megan or Ian or Emily, if this question that, that Missy has just articulated is the right one. Is that the, is that the question that we ought to be asking? What makes a classic? Is this book a classic? What do you guys think about that? I like, I like all three of the things that you said, um, determine whether or not the book goes on the list. Um, 
the conversation you were talking about with Adler and those men who put together the great conversation, that list of books. I like all three of the things that um, they argue determines a good book, but they do feel a little bit arbitrary. Um, it feels like anybody could think of some things that would determine whether or not a book went on the list. So um, I don't know, I'm still a little bit hung up on what's the use of the list itself. I like the fact that if you have a list of these things might make a book a great book and make it belong on a list, that's helpful for the reader. I think that's a good good direction for our conversation to go in. But okay. I am a little stuck on how arbitrary those things are. Well, any list-making exercise is going to be open to the charge of arbitrariness, mm-hmm. right? Just as, as much as a 50-year a rule sounds right. a little arbitrary. I mean, if you have a book that is participating in the conversation about just one great idea that might be universal, but it doesn't participate in a couple of conversations, then by Adler's rule, it doesn't go on the list. But what if it's got really profound things to say just about, about that one the idea. nature of love and nothing else? <laughs> right, you know? right, Doesn't right. it belong on the list? Ian, what do you think? Well, I I agree with with some of Megan's um, what's the word I'm looking for? Compunction is that the word I'm looking for? I don't mm, know. Maybe we can cut that part out. But um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I agree with Megan, and I think the issue is with the word classic. Mm. Um, I think we try and do too many things with it. We justify a course of study with it. And ultimately, if we're not careful, we exclude engaging with our culture using right. that word. Mm-hmm. What do you and, mean by that? Um, so I'm, I'm going to get there. I mean, to, so it, in order to define a classic, what we're saying is um, only useful in defining that word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we can't be construed to be saying and should be really careful not to say when we say what's a classic is what is worth reading. Right. Ah. Yep. What's worth considering. Exactly. What's worth studying. If all we ever read is the classics, and we look only backward into the into the past. All we're going to get, and this is not, this is no small thing that mm-hmm. we'll get. It's a good thing that we'll get, but all that we will get is an idea of where we've come from. Right. Um, and I think that the aim of reading, and in particular the aim of studying literature, is to make us capable thinkers and compassionate human beings who are capable of looking forward mm-hmm. into our culture and into the world that we live in now and inter- interacting with it as these great authors of the past would have had us do, as indeed they were doing when they wrote their books. <laughs> as right. indeed they were doing in 1620 <laughs> when they wrote Hamlet, for well, example. Yeah, if, exactly. you're only, if you're only looking backwards, you're missing out on having the community of today, the ideas that are currently going right. on that you might be able to participate right. in. Well, and I don't think anybody is arguing that we ought not to participate in the literature of today's world. Hmm. I, I would never argue such a thing. I think that it is the, being argued. The great book. Well, I'm not arguing. Right. The great book set. <laughs> right. No, um, I agree. The the worthiness of a project like putting together a list of classics is really to help us get a lay of the land. Yeah, yeah. To understand our heritage and to understand why the things that are being said are being said, and to more easily contextualize a book that was written last yes, week. Absolutely. Yeah. If yep. we don't, how well, can we possibly understand the works of the 20th century? If we don't understand the works that, um, that immediately written in the 19th. Them? Yeah, exactly. Because so much is action and reaction. Something is exactly right. like our conversation today. I say something and it causes you to say something and we come to terms about it. Or we, we find that we must depart, <laughs> you know, we which, must I separate. Think... That's exactly what's going on in the great conversation between the authors as they, um, deal with ideas of what a man is, what is his position to the universe, what is the universe, is it purely material, is it supernatural, is it a combination of the two? All of these kinds of ideas are the are the things that the great conversation tracks, and until we understand what came right. before, we can't possibly place what is present. Go ahead, Ian. I, 
or Emily. Emily, <clears throat> go ahead. Emily first. Well, I, I have I see two things. Um, the first thing I was thinking is that um, part of the problem with only looking in the past, um, I think sometimes there's a, a temptation to cut off the art that we're consuming at a certain point. Say, for example, we spend so much time on the ancients, then you're only getting one part of the conversation. Right. It's a good part, and you need to know that part, but the conversation is growing as time increases in each age. Um, even though human beings are the same and we're asking the same questions, each age is bringing its own circumstances to the table and adding to the conversation in that way. And the ancients had their circumstances that made them think about the question in a certain light. And uh, Jane Austen had it when she wrote Pride and Prejudice and Shakespeare had it, um, his own set of circumstances when he wrote Hamlet and Hemingway had his own set of circumstances when he wrote The Old Man in the Sea that are different from those. And you will be missing a part of the conversation if you don't read that. Yes. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing I see is that we have to be really careful when we say, um, that a classic is universally compelling. I think we need to define what that means. And I know we've talked about it in our podcast before, but universally compelling doesn't mean universally liked or accepted or, or righteous true or true or good. Right. Absolutely. That's absolutely what, true. So this, that actually dovetails perfectly with what I wanted to say next. I think I've sort of crystallized um, the thought I tried to get out a little bit earlier. Go ahead. Um, by looking around in the world today and asking, are any of the books around me classics? We're asking the wrong question. I thought We're looking we might for the be. wrong thing, mm. right? A, a classic is an old, worthy mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. Read them. They're great, okay? <laughs> but the question we should be asking of works right this minute, of contemporary works is, where is the art, right? It, it, and is it good or bad art? Um, and I think that gets to the heart of what Emily was saying just now, because um, what she what she said is by classic, we don't mean universally accepted, righteous, good or true. What we mean is that it's participating in this conversation in one way or another. And that's the way it, when it comes to literature, I would define a work of art. Yes. Right. Is it thoughtful? Is it profound? Is it um, participating in this long and and heralded conversation? So I think maybe the, the question we should ask now is where's the art? And, and even more than that, um, a good book will be participating in the conversation. A great book is adding something new to the conversation. Mm -hmm. So where are we left if all we're doing is reading books that are all saying the same thing about the conversation? We need to be reading all the different sides of the conversation. Those are the great books. I agree. So does any book, I mean, I, I think you guys, I think you have turned our students' question to a much more productive direction hmm. by saying the best thing to be asking is, is the book in front of me a, a worthy right. contribution to the great conversation? That's a better question than does it, be, will it belong a hundred years from now on some list on of classics? Yeah. I and, think you're exactly right. right about that. But the next question to ask is how do we decide that? In other words, Emily, what do you mean by, what should we mean by universally compelling? Or worthy. Yes. In your view, em, Emily, what, what should we mean by that? Uh, well, I think it's, like I said, adding to the conversation something new, something important, something that needs to be said, and something that is going to influence the way that we're thinking about the idea. Um, right, but that's it. I, what I would say in response to this question is this is where we got um, all mixed up in the first place. 
because in order to evaluate whether a book currently is going to participate in that conversation, you have to know the conversation. It involves some comparisons to these old worthy books. Yeah. That's where our wires got crossed. Okay. Right? We, we started to think we're looking for a classic because in order to evaluate a work of art, you have to compare it to other works of art. And if you've had a good education, the works of art in your head to compare it to are the classics. Yeah. Right. So, I, I mean, I think um, the standards for what is art and what's participation in that conversation are ones that are necessarily a sticky thing to define when it comes to our, um, oh, there's a, there's a word for this and I can't think of what it is, but I guess our theory of literature, our theory of reading. Well, let, let me make it very specific then. Let's take the case of one of the titles in the list provided by our student uh, that where, where she assumes it belongs on the list of universal classics and there is some debate about that because of its relatively young age and because of some questionable content in it. I'm referring to F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel from ni- the 1920s, The Great Gatsby. I noticed you called it a classic novel. Uh, uh, you're right, I did. <laughs> Betraying your own ideas. I actually, I actually am not neutral on this subject. You're solidarity however, with your student there. <laughs> however, let's take that as an example. This is a book that's less than 100 years old, written at the height of a... A particular intellectual period in American history that doesn't bear a lot of resemblance, perhaps, to previous periods of history, the source of many of our classics. How do we position, think about, evaluate, define, and judge Fitzgerald's novel? Well, can I just point in something out really quick? You said questionable content, but you want to talk about questionable content. What about Read Lysistrata? What about the Rage of Achilles? <laughs> what about mowing down fair virgins? What about the violence? What about the immorality. What about yes. unwed liaisons? Yeah, <laughs> okay. well, I, I think. Yeah, how about how about Odysseus? That's, so, that's my favorite <laughs> phrasing yes. of illegitimate intercourse. Unwed liaisons. That's awesome. <laughs> unwed liaisons. I, you know what? I think this touches on um, on what we we should probably talk about the fact that the great books are not a repository of capital T truth. The only great book that is the repository of capital T truth is the Bible. The Bible alone contains the very words God breathed, right? That's it. All the rest are works of men. And men, you know, the things that we write are a combination of truth and error. Even a good book is a combination of truth and error. And when you look at a running dialogue of books, since books were, uh, since we started writing books at the beginning of time, you're going to find a variety of different opinions coming to bear on one single topic and they don't all say the same thing. So they can't all be exactly right. Okay. Fair right? enough. Fair There's enough. contradiction even among books that are considered by everyone to be classics. They answer the big questions um, that surround the universal conversation in different ways. Right. They have a variety of contributions to make on the subject oh. and some of them would really resonate with you and some of them really wouldn't you yeah. would, you would take issue with them um they're not classics because they're right mm-hmm. they're classics because they were significant contributions they helped to shape the conversation itself around a given topic and the ones that get included on a a list of the greatest classics shaped more than one of those topics, right? which is not to diminish the ones that shaped only one topic. They were extremely important. You should read them. But in the interest of time, because we cannot read all of the books in the world, 
if you can only read some, to read the ones that contributed to a variety of conversations Gives you more bang for your and buck. <laughs> shaped them definitively. I mean, that just makes sense. Yeah, right. You know, if you're trying to figure out where you are and how you got here in terms of intellectual development, right? I get it. Read those, and then you can look around at your own time and have a little, maybe a minute, to peruse them and become a contributor. Well, then let's ask the question then, and let's let's make sure we're asking the right question about The Great Gatsby. Let's maybe not ask the question, when The Great Gatsby's 100-year birthday comes up in another 10 years or so, <laughs> will it be granted admission onto the list of classics? Let's instead ask the question that Ian and Emily and Megan and Missy are suggesting that we ask, is The Great Gatsby a worthy contribution to The Great Conversation? What kind of contribution does it make? Is it the kind of thing we want to read? Should it make our list of books we, should, we ought to be reading to understand the 20th century, say, or something like that? What do you guys think? Well, you'd have to start asking questions about what are the great ideas that it engages. And right off the top of my head, no, obviously, you, you can about... have an opinion about The Great Gatsby without rehashing the great books. I believe in you. No, no, I think that I'm not rehashing any great books. I think this is really <laughs> significant to be aware of what the conversation, what, what shape has the conversation taken up until this point, right? I mean, think about it. If you're, let's say you're, you're not a, let's not talk about literature for a minute. Let's talk about science. If you're doing scientific research, isn't it important to know what has come before you so that you're not duplicating the research and experiments that have already been, been done? You're trying Absolutely. to go forward. That's not what I meant. What I meant was, I want to know what your opinion of The Great Gatsby is. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> when? Hold on to your hat. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt, buddy. <laughs> could you do it now? Yes, I could. I'm thinking in terms of big ideas. And one of the main things that asks is, what is a good love? Mm -hmm. What is a good love? And its contribution to the ideas of what a good love is kind of comes through... Um, Negative yeah, commentator. Not this. Neg negative comments, right? right? It, well, it certainly doesn't look like this. Yeah. Right? It doesn't look like Daisy Buchanan uh -huh. or her husband. Uh -huh. And the question remains does it look like Gatsby? I don't think so. It gets a, I think that question well, gets a pretty clear answer. Go ahead, Emily. Sorry. Well, I was just going to add that it's able to say this because it's coming at a time in history where we're starting to see the fruition of the quote, American dream, dream question mark. Um, that America has been around long enough that the supposed American dream is starting to have some consequences. Yes. And the, I, that, that idea right there, that the American dream itself is predicated on the assumption that the world is a particular thing, right? The question of what is, what is reality? What's the nature of reality? And the way that the modernists answered that question is it's material. Mm -hmm. The world is um, just stuff. There's no supernatural element to it whatsoever. And so the accumulation of stuff becomes the goal. Mm -hmm. If, if you know, you live and you die and, and he who dies with the most toys wins, that's going to dictate the way that you participate in this thing we call life. And it creates the kind of decadence that we see in Fitzgerald's novel. And he's bemoaning, really, these presuppositions in his novel. Not necessarily saying that he disagrees with them, only bemoaning them. Right. In other words, making a, a comment about the situation of the human soul in the world that he lives in. Yes. This is where 
this is what it means to be a man in this particular time and place. Yes. And isn't it a tragedy? That's basically his contribution to the conversation. The pathos involved in being a human being in a world um, that is purely material. Mm. And whether we happen to agree with his presuppositions or not... That the world is purely material. Right, which, of course, I certainly don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, it's, it doesn't take anything away from the fact that many have adopted that. And as a matter of fact, the majority, um, a great majority of intellectual leaders in the 20th century did adopt his presuppositions. And that was a gigantic departure from what came before them. And we will not understand... For example, the 21st century, unless we know that and understand the shape that that dialogue took. And so as an educator myself, not just, I mean, first and foremost, we educate ourselves, right? right? We're all teachers. We're teaching ourselves. But those of us who go on and we're, we're trying to teach our children and students, we have a responsibility to learn the shape of that conversation and to help them see it so they're not stranded and sideswiped by ideas that they've never come in contact with. For example, we need our students need to learn and we need to learn right along with them that the uh, ideological corner that was turned in the West in 1900 mm-hmm. or thereabouts mm-hmm. had serious philosophical, social, economic consequences, yes. had consequences for the self-image of the human soul Absolutely. in the West. It, and and anybody reading in the 21st century that doesn't understand that landscape mm-hmm. is at a disadvantage. They're tripping and around further, in the dark. Yes. And further, that the uh, novels like Jay Gatsby or F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby mm-hmm. are, are important artistic signposts yes. of that corner turn of that journey around that corner. Yes? Yes, they're offering us symbols and metaphors and statements about those pervasive ideas, those shaping ideas. So I have a question for you both, taking it to a more practical level. Say I'm a teenager, um, I'm in high school, I'm going through puberty, I'm confused, I don't even know what I understand about myself (laughs) in the world, I don't understand anything. Isn't it dangerous for me to encounter these things because story works on the heart? Wow. What a great question. That was not written beforehand to all our listeners. That came right off the top of Amelia's head, or at least I didn't know it was written beforehand. (laughs) Story works on the heart, of course, as Hutchins said, or one of the the, um, great books authors, Missy, that you read a minute ago, Mm -hmm. story works on the heart. And so... If I could paraphrase, is there a danger for young readers who maybe want to dip into the 20th century? Is there a danger when they encounter works that that spring from that age where moral certainty is gone? You know what? I think only if if you're not helping them to identify the presuppositions that are contained within that work of art. If they're merely consumed and never digested, and discussed and understood, maybe. But I think that that even presupposes that the books themselves can make us virtuous in some way. And, you know, the flip side of that is make us, um, make vicious. us sin, right? Make us vicious, full of vice. Um, and I, I think that's debatable. That's very debatable. I think the only, again, the only work that contains all truth and virtue and that is capable of producing truth and virtue in the heart of man is the very word of God. 
His word alone accomplishes the thing that it commands. Let there be light, and there was. But my words cannot accomplish a change in your heart necessarily, right? I speak as a human being. Right, but we Im- have a conversation. Right, but nobody denies the power of drama. Nobody denies the power of art to work on the on the heart, as Emily said. I want to turn that question around, Emily, and make you answer it yourself. What do you think? Well, having been there, <laughs> I knew that was autobiographical. <laughs> I knew it. Having been there, I. I think that there's a lot to you saying that it takes guidance, right? I yeah. think it has way more to do with the tone of the home and the atmosphere that is being taught um, that's going to be the protection and that you don't want to protect them from the ideas themselves because they are struggling to figure out who they are in the world. We are, um, we all are, but it's yeah. particularly raw at that time. And it's, all education is dangerous to some degree or another, mm. and but it's a good risk. Education is a good risk because in the end, it's only going to make their final vision of themselves stronger. And they're not going to feel like you were hiding something from them. Mm. I think that's, that's one true. of the reasons why we need teachers, guides, yeah, you know, shepherds who have maybe made the journey themselves already. Yes, you know, or they've gone a little further along the road than we have in asking these questions and can shepherd us as we ask them ourselves. Who can, for example, suggest that the Great Gatsby is not an invitation to license and debauchery yes. and dissipation? It's not a but recommendation. It's actually, <laughs> it is actually a meditation on the issue of morality. Yes. And it actually is a, a world weary, disillusioned, bemoaning of the fact yes. that something necessary has been taken out of the American mm-hmm. psyche. Yes, something and, necessary. And he's, he's not vague about what that necessary thing is. Oh, no, he's not at all. I mean, think of the, the billboard with Dr. TJ Eckelman's eyes peering out over the wasteland, right? The, really, the valley of dust and yeah. ashes, the gray land there that he, he pictures. He gives us um, symbolic images that reference the absence of God, the removal of God or the supernatural from mm-hmm. the conversation. Um, and that is one of the major, the major ideas. And, and to the, to the response that, well, but the, the, um, the characters and the situations in Gatsby are so poignant that they're going to work on the hearts of young readers. I would respond by saying, what could be more poignant than a world where the very necessary moral center has been removed? Mm. That is a sad thing. A story about that should be sad. Mm. In a situation where, as Emily suggests, students have guides, Mm. the home is a place where those kind of conversations happen. That could be a pretty fruitful literary experience, wouldn't you think? Right, right. Better to guide them through those questions before they leave, right? Yeah. Um, And not only that, but I think that I think that sometimes we are too worried about books um, or that we give them too, I don't want to say give them too much power because of course they are powerful, but I am not, it's it's the same as the book that won't be mentioned, right? Like I'm not going to go become a wizard because <laughs> I read this book because, <laughs> because I, 
of my home because of who my family is. And if that's something that you're worried about, that's probably you're already creating an atmosphere in your home that is mitigating against that. Mm, right. Also, um, just want to like blanket statement. Harry Potter's not real. It's fiction. That's one of the reasons that we read fiction, by the way, is to organize our thoughts in such a way that we've set up, we've set up um, things to coax what we could call maybe the moral imagination. Uh. And there's a big difference between the moral imagination and actual morality, right? And, and literature is doing one of them and isn't doing the other one. Well, you'll have to explain really what you mean by the, yeah. by the difference, Ian. Well, so we, we talk a lot about, okay, why to teach literature? Well, because we want to cultivate the soul, right? We want to make our students people in an important sense. And in order to be a person, especially to be a well-rounded, compassionate, thoughtful person, you have to encounter suffering, right? And that's going to happen in your own life in, in either small ways or large ways, depending on the course the Lord has set for you. But one phenomenally um, non-threatening and yet really convicting way to encounter suffering is to go read, right? Read about the thoughts of man as they encounter their own lives, because every author is writing to some extent, as we establish on this podcast all the time, is writing about suffering and our responses to it, mm -hmm. right? So all of this is a project in cultivating the soul, cultivating what I would call immoral imagination, giving us a love for good, true, and beautiful things, mm. right? And a distaste for everything that's opposite of good and true and beautiful. Right. That's one of the major roles of literature. However, that's a, that is very different than say reading Proverbs. Oh yeah. Right. The book of Proverbs is here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. If you turn to literature to read the book of Proverbs, you've turned all of fiction into Aesop's fables. Mm-hmm. All right. And there's nothing, there's, the genre. there's no depth to them, yeah. right? You're, you're doing dishonor to the literature that you're reading. If you treat cultivation of the moral imagination and teaching of morality into the same thing, mm -hmm. literature is not the Proverbs. Mm. Right. Again, like I said, in our Shakespeare podcast, that's what bothers me so much about people trying to find characters worthy of emulation in his plays, because that is not the point. There are zero characters worthy of emulation because none of us are worthy of emulation. <laughs> right. Right. Behold man. Yeah. <laughs> In all of his uh, foibles and inconsistencies and inadequacies. Yes. And you know, we should be one man worthy of emulation. Yes. Right. Yes. That's right. And we should be so, um, we should be startled not when we see a man doing wrong, but when we see a man doing right, that should be mm. more startling to us. Mm. And um, I think I think you're right. I really agree with you that that one of the great values of reading these true representations of man, um, in so much as they're really reporting what they see and painting a an accurate picture of humanity as they experience it themselves and as they meet it in other people, it's very useful to us in cultivating that moral imagination because as we read, we see facets of our own person facets of our own condition, mm -hmm. I guess, is a better way to say that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, self-knowledge is one of the, the surest paths to virtue. In fact, I might call it virtue, mm -hmm. being aware yeah. of yourself, knowing yourself and all that that means. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, the great books are, are they're, they're very useful in, first of all, knowing who we are and where we came from. And in 
demonstrating the big ideas. And sometimes we see within them glimpses of virtue. Right. What does it mean to be virtuous? It, it begs the question. Many of these books beg the question of what does virtue look like? What, what does it mean to be virtuous? Some of the authors were intentionally asking that question, and so we should be asking it with them. Right. And others weren't really going for that game. Right. They were going for other game. They were writing about other ideas. Yes. And um, they made contributions in the, in the shape of different topics. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to read by genre, first of all, and then we have to read in a way that's consistent with the purposes of, of the author, with the conversation itself, that we have to recognize the conversation that's going on here in the room that we happen to walk into when we open the pages of this particular book and understand its dynamics before we start engaging the author, because otherwise we might be changing the subject on them. Yeah, Right. Well, in particular, if we if we make the con- the conflation of those two ideas that Ian tried to protect us from a minute ago, if we go to a book to find moral lessons, and uh, mistaking that for a development of the immoral imagination, which I think Ian, your distinction is a good one. Um, fair game if we want to go find moral lessons from the rule of Saint Benedict, or from the Proverbs in the Old Testament. But I don't think F. Scott Fitzgerald was necessarily setting out to give his students a catechism of morality. And so we might be changing the subject on him if we looked for one in the great Gatsby. I mean, it's almost, it's a little bit like this may, this may be a useless harping on something we've already said really clearly, but it's a little bit, I mean, imagine yourself in a conversation with a real person and a real person sits down across the table from you and says, I am broken, right? This horrible thing has just happened to me. I've just, I've just lost a family member to cancer, or I have just gotten in a car accident and my son was killed or suffering. Here's my suffering. Walk into this with me. And you sit down and you go, well, you know, what you really shouldn't do is this and this and this and so. What does that do to the conversation? Well, I'll tell you what it does. It stifles it. There's no learning going on there, Hmm. right? Right. Without without the willingness to reach out to one another in that moment of suffering and identify with each other, not to say here is here is virtue and here's what you should strive for and I'll strive alongside of you, but to climb down into the trench of despair that this other person is sitting in and sit there with them. That's what literature invites us to do. Mm. And would it be a horribly controversial thing for me to say that I think you have a better chance of awakening a desire to do what is right by reading The Great Gatsby? Than you do reading this rule of St. Benedict. Why do you say that, Emily? Because when you're, it's that whole thing about working through the heart, right? We're seeing ourselves and all of our depravity. Um, we're seeing the mistakes that we're given to. And it, it makes your heart ache. Well, that's, that's and, the joy of imaginative literature, really. Um, those other books, like your, the rule of St. Benedict and some of those nonfiction books, Absolutely, we would consider them great books, but they're not works. Of, um, they're not fiction. They're not works of imaginative literature in the same sense. They don't work on the heart. They don't in the work same on the way. heart in the same way. Yeah, I, George MacDonald talked about this a lot, and it's the reason why he went from writing sermons to writing children's literature. It's because he believed that the the beauty of a work of art of of a novel is that it engaged the heart and influenced the mind now here we get back to this issue of should we be afraid then about giving our kids works of literature that direct the heart Uh, in ways that we don't really want them to go. And maybe if you're not going to deal with the literature, maybe if you're not going to discuss the literature 
um, to just let them feed on it in an unreflective sort of way. Maybe so. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe so. But, you know, what we're trying to do here is help them navigate the shoals of the world that they live in. And we have at our disposal these opportunities to meet the minds um, who have made significant contributions to the shoals themselves. Fabulous. They've left us um, navigation tools. And in so much as we are teachers, we can utilize these to help them find their way, to help them see um, where the currents are, where the eddies are that are going to trip them up and suck them down. We can help them um, navigate the, the philosophical trends of their own time as a result of understanding where they came from. So that, that's what they're, they're good for, I think. The, the works that have ideas that we may disagree with, I, I don't think that we come away from them. I'm thinking about Ernest Hemingway at this point. Like, I don't think that we come away from them just knowing how to disagree with nihilism. Rather, I think he portrays man and all his brokenness really mm-hmm. beautifully and oh, we become does. empathetic and i don't mean pity i don't mean we pity the man who doesn't believe in right a god i mean we're truly compassionate for a man who is broken and we see our own brokenness in them and hemingway was one of the great authors to do that mm. i agree mm. i agree Guys, I this is one of the great conversations we've had. This is so, oh. so um, engrossing. We are out of time, however. So what I want to do uh, at, here at the very end is I want to answer our student's question directly with a quick trip around the table. Her question was, which books from my generation will become classics someday? And let me expand the question just a little bit, since some of us don't come from her generation. Which books written in the last 100 years that have not yet passed the 100-year test, do you think will eventually someday, after we're all dead, be on everybody's list of classics? Any suggestions? You only get one. You can't say, oh, it's so hard to choose. You have to give me a title. Ready, go. (laughs) Can I go first? You can. How about uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Thank you. I love it. I think I agree with you on that one. Uh, this is, you're going to have to give me a chance to think if I have to narrow it down to one. Very good. Ian, Emily. I mean, I would probably say the works of Marilyn Robinson. That's no fair. It's not a title. (laughs) (laughs) Choose one, Emily. Don't get out of it. I was particularly struck by home. The second one home, her trilogy by Marilyn Robinson. I love it. Ian, you, I think I would have to say, um, the Memory of Old Jack by Wendell Berry. Hmm. The Memory of Old Jack by Wendell Berry. Since I um, let you all go first, I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit and say The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Nice. See, now, but this is cheating because these are, that's, yeah. these are already accepted. <laughs> no, they're not. Oh, no, 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 no. Lord of the Rings is written in the 40s or the 50s. Yeah, that's not been canonized in any way, shape, or form. Missy, you. Um, since I'm well, last, the... I'm going to do the cleanup and I am going to, cannot say more than one. You can <laughs> absolutely cannot do that. No way. <laughs> she I'm... can't help herself. We'll I cut it. Myself. You can only say one. 
you can only say one. Just two. Also, no. I think we should have asked the question as what written in the last 10 to 15 years or the last 20 years goes in. Because right. I was if, the, if we're 15 years from saying that something is a classic, we already know that's cheating. <laughs> I was going to add, just because someone needs to say something that's controversial, I was going to say the works of Cormac McCarthy. Uh, yeah, no, no, exactly. you said something already. If I was going to have to drop Lord of the Rings, I was going to say um, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. So... You yeah, can't say it because I said it. Okay, Miss, you get, you get one title. Go. Well, I'm saying two. Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. <laughs> That's not fair. No way. Until we have faces play the by C.S. Lewis. You have to play so, the game like the rest of us. Have so that part out. We are, um, since, well, yeah, Missy just fouled just, up the whole you know, game. Till we have faces by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, you guys and said Jaber the works Crow. of. So that kind of is. Comprehensive. I would also like to say, I went for the spirit of this question, which <laughs> this poor girl, this poor girl asked us what written in my generation is going to be a classic. And so I chose something written no later than 50 years ago. Well, then you were and you listening. guys are all Dad, citing C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Give me a break. That's what I said. Give me a break. Oh, my goodness. Guys, thank you for another scintillating conversation. <laughs> that is all the time we have for today. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Bibliophiles. And thank you, too, to all of you who have gone to iTunes and rated our podcast. We really appreciate that. Uh, until we meet again, please come by the website, www.centerforlit.com, and check and see what other resources we have for readers, thinkers, teachers, and parents, including the Pelican Society, our membership program for people who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Inside, you'll find discounts on all of our products and a host of exclusive resources just for Pelicans. We appreciate you coming along with us for Bibliophiles today. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy, happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. But there's more. Center for Lit is now taking orders for the second edition of Teaching the Classics, our flagship teacher training seminar. Visit us at centerforlit.com to place your order or to register for our free informational webinar, which will feature excerpts from Teaching the Classics and live discussion with the Center for Lit crew. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.